Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 410th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, as you know, is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Our lead story this morning is about today. Actually, today, April 7th, you see, today is World Health Day. The confluence of this International Day of Recognition for Nurses comes in the midst of the deadly coronavirus that has shattered life around the world, as you know. Well, it's certainly very timely, and I'd like to thank the nurses myself. And today, we're also fortunate to have Lorraine Fernand, the president of the International Federation of Health Information Management Association. Lorraine is our special guest this morning, and she's going to be reporting our lead story. And also on the broadcast this morning will be Lori Johnson, who has the Top 10 Tuesday Coding Report. And later in the broadcast, Stanley Nockinson returns with a very popular segment called Reg Watch. Yeah, we are really overworking Stanley right now with all the regulations coming out of Washington this week. We certainly are. And uh, you have a talkback segment today. What are you going to be reporting? Uh, I'm going to do my talkback about COVID-19 coding. Very good. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University Bookstore, reminding you that Dr. Eric Reamer's CDI learning modules for providers are now available. Use the ICD-10 Monitor Resources tab at the top of the web room for more information. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And there's a COVID-19 cluster in Yucaipa, California. Skilled nursing facilities like Cedar Mountain Post-Acute Care are also in Yucaipa. I had the opportunity recently to talk about the impact on skilled nursing facilities of the COVID-19 outbreak with my sister. My sister has been the director of nursing for a number of skilled nursing facilities in the area near Yucaipa. She is working without a mask. You can't beg, borrow, or steal a mask for the nurses in her facility. They take the temperature of nurses as they report to work and send nurses home that have fevers. The problem is is that the incubation period of COVID-19 allows for the transmission before symptoms appear. Interestingly enough, I came to realize talking to my sister that nurses in skilled nursing facilities face outbreaks and are used to an onslaught of infectious disease. Under the current load, she has developed a severe cold. She's not running a fever, so she's coming to work. Like many other nurses, she's actually concerned about the accuracy of COVID-19 diagnosis. She also tells me that since epidemics hit skilled nursing homes regularly, and she is not sure that COVID-19 is that much worse than everything, she just simply deals with it. Nurses in skilled nursing facilities are already worried about infections. C. diff, or I'm going to struggle to pronounce it, but it's going to be in my article, is a bacterium that causes diarrhea and colitis, which is an inflammation of the colon. It's estimated to cause almost half a million illnesses in the United States alone each year. Last year, over 34,000 Americans died from influenza. For the 2017-2018 season, the total number of deaths hit 61,000. COVID-19 will almost certainly kill more Americans than any influenza season since the Spanish flu in 1918, 
But thank God nurses will help us through another crisis. Have you air hugged a nurse today? And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's World Health Day today, Tuesday, April 7th, and you're listening to the 410th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Capturing the full legal reimbursements for spinal procedures depends on complete and accurate outpatient coding, including the correct use of CPT codes, modifiers, and add-on codes. Anyone who's dealt with the complexities of outpatient spinal procedure coding knows that's easier said than done. But with an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast, you'll learn how to evaluate and streamline outpatient coding for spinal procedures covering both facility and professional services. Our expert presenter, Carrie Greenwood, will provide clear, detailed explanations of spinal anatomy, spinal procedures, and correct CPT coding practices. This webcast is this Thursday, April 9th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $30 when you enter the coupon code TUESDAY at checkout. During this national public health emergency, accessible online education is more important than ever before. So visit the ICD-10 Monitor web store to learn how you can access the ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcast subscription. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. After a few weeks of social distancing, we are looking for some good news. My good news is coming from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, on April 5th, 2020, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh are close to having a test that will identify if a person has immunity to COVID-19. It is believed that the test would be used to identify staff to work the front line without fear of contracting COVID-19. Additional news coming from Pittsburgh on April 2nd, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center has announced the development of a, co- of a vaccine to protect from COVID-19. UPMC is in the process of obtaining federal permission to begin testing. They have tested uh, the vaccine on mice and found that they developed antibodies against COVID-19 after two weeks of receiving the vaccine. Before you get too excited about vaccine, it will take approximately 12 to 14 months before a vaccine would be available. This vaccine has a unique delivery method. It is a patch with tiny needles that dissolve into the skin and delivers the vaccine. The administration of the vaccine would be Z23. And just a little bit of more information when we're talking about exposure or having COVID-19, for patients who um, don't have exposure and their test results are negative, you should assign Z11.59, which is encounter for screening for other viral diseases. For patients who are asymptomatic and test positive, assign U07.1. For patients who have signs and symptoms and have had contact with someone who has or suspected to have COVID-19, assign codes for the symptoms 
and Z20.828 contact uh, with and suspected exposure to other viral communicable diseases. And that is an exception to the contact exposure guideline. The recent AHA webinar suggested that your facility-specific guidelines should be updated with a process to hold COVID-19 testing cases until you know if the tests are positive or negative, and that's to ensure that the, um, the accuracy of your ICD-10 diagnosis codes. With that, Erica, I will turn it back to you. I just would like to remind people that there are 30% negative tests that are false negatives. And so if a provider thinks a patient has COVID-19 and they document it as such, if you hold it and it comes back negative, you may still have a provider saying, I don't care what the test says. I think this patient has COVID-19 and then it should be coded. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Now's the time for RegWatch, featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Nockerson. And good morning, Stanley. Stanley, there have been so many regulations and news coming out of CMS. A lot of stuff going on in Washington these days. What do we need to know? You're right. There's a lot of work that's being done. But I, I do want to give a shout out to all of the thousands of federal workers at, at CDC, at FDA, at CMS, and the other agencies. They're working tirelessly to help everybody get through the pandemic. I'm not sure that folks across the country recognize the tremendous efforts that these folks are making to ensure people get the health services that they need. So big shout out uh, to our federal workforce. Some of the key actions that we've seen are the recognition that telehealth coverage is absolutely critical to to treating folks during this pandemic. Um, And even the Office of the National Coordinator and OCR are Uh, getting into the fight, giving uh, themselves some discretion, allowing the uh, relaxing of some of the privacy and security requirements for telehealth to enable providers to use those technologies to treat their patients. I want to get into some specific uh, CMS actions for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, The CMS has relaxed requirements to uh, help increase hospital capacity now temporarily permitting non-hospital buildings and spaces to be used for patient care or quarantine sites, enabling hospital emergency departments to test and screen patients in their parking lots. Physician-owned hospitals can also temporarily increase their number of licensed beds, as well as operating or procedure rooms. Hospitals would also be able to bill Medicare just as normal in these alternative sites of care. They're boosting payments for ambulatory surgical centers who can contract with local health systems to help provide hospital services consistent with their state's emergency preparedness and pandemic plan. The surgery centers will get paid at the hospital level for any such services under a contract. They are enabling hospitals to test COVID-19 people at home or in other settings outside of hospital. They are removing barriers to boost workforce capacity, enabling hospitals and healthcare systems to quickly hire more staff to meet the swell of COVID-19 cases. They're issuing waivers to hospitals so that other practitioners, such as physicians' assistants and nurse practitioners, can perform services like order a test or medications that previously only physician could order, permitting that this is state law. They're allowing providers to enroll in Medicare temporarily during the emergency period. 
that are waiving requirements for nurse anesthetists, removing a requirement that nurse anesthetists need supervision by a physician. The goal is to free up the physicians to expand capacity. They're boosting benefits to healthcare workers. They're temporarily covering respiratory-related devices and equipment under Medicare, removing paperwork requirements for physicians. They're issuing Medicaid waivers to allow states to better serve their beneficiaries. And they have provided new coding and guidance for COVID-19, new ICD-10 diagnosis codes from the CDC, which are being allowed uh, to be in effect much earlier. There are CPT codes from the AMA and HCPCS codes from CMS, again, to enable the accurate coding of COVID-19 and the procedures to handle the disease. So there's just a tremendous amount of stuff going on, and we can expect these emergency procedures to continue for quite a while. Erica, back to you. Thank you, Stanley. I have been really impressed with how quickly they have been responding. I agree with you entirely. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson's Advisors, LLC. Today, April 7th, is World Health Day. It's a proclamation by the World Health Organization. Joining us now is Lorraine Fernand. Lorraine is the president of the International Federation of Health Information Management Associations. And given that this global pandemic and World Health Day are occurring within the same time frame, what lessons can we learn from this coincidence, Lorraine? As I think about the irony of today, I think about flexibility and innovation. There is nothing like a compelling event to really bring out the best in all of us and to think creative, creatively, flexibly, and applying innovation to global situations like we're in today. And in, in that context, IFEMA is currently surveying our member nations as well as our individual members about the health information management business processes in light of COVID-19. So the preliminary results from this survey will be disseminated in late April. So stay tuned in May to hear from me, perhaps. If FEMA, we're celebrating, or we recently celebrated, our 50th anniversary as the Global Health Information Management Umbrella Organization, supporting our 23 member nations and hundreds of individual corporate and educational institution members. Our website showcases a lot of this anniversary celebration if you want to see it in, in pictures. And you'll note that on this World Health Day, the vision of IFHEMA is a healthy world enabled by quality health information, certainly fitting for today. IFHEMA, for those who aren't familiar with us, is an NGO with official relations with the World Health Organization for over 40 years. We're proud of this unique status and the service of our nations and the individual members to the WHO Federation of International Classifications, HUFIC as it's called, and committees like the Education and Implementation Committee that are obviously full bore with ICD-11 and the Morbidity Reference Group. We publish Global News, our newsletter, three times a year, and the issues highlight member nation activities, activities with the World Health Organization, success stories that we all hope come out of this global pandemic, and industry viewpoints. So again, go to our website. So what are we doing today? Well, we have a workforce development white paper, which we'll publish in early 2021, 
and a social media strategy work group advancing our social media strategy. And a work group that might be of particular interest to our listeners today is developing a white paper that will address the many facets of ICD-11 implementation as countries begin to organize for ICD-11 deployment. As we all know, thinking about ICD-11, it is complex, it's multifaceted, especially since ICD-11 is dramatically different than ICD-10. In 2018, we undertook enhancement to our learning modules, which are introductory materials, particularly for our developing nations in Africa and Asia, as they inform all levels of the healthcare workforce. I've spoken on previous Talk 10 segments about the data privacy paper that IFEMA published, and it's available on our website. As we manage today's reality, and prepare for tomorrow, let's put a tick in our calendar for late October or early November of 2022, where we will host the 20th IFHEMA Congress in Brisbane, Australia. So something fun coming in a couple of years. Finally, as you consider the meaning of World Health Day, please consider joining IFHEMA as an individual member. On World Health Day, and always on behalf of IFHEMA, be well, stay safe, and we hope to talk with you in the future. Back to you, Erica. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Lorraine. That was Lorraine Fernan. Lorraine is the president of the International Federation of Health Information Management Associations, IFHEMA. And you can read Lorraine's exclusive report on the global response in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. And coming up in about just 60 seconds from now, our very popular segment called Talk Back with Dr. Erica Reamer. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Under the new 1135 waiver, Medicare rules for coverage and payment of telehealth services have been relaxed due to the current public health emergency. But there's still plenty of confusion when it comes to coverage and payment for telehealth services. The good news is there's a new webcast explaining exactly what Medicare will cover for office, hospital, and other visits furnished via telehealth across the country. This webcast, How to Bill for Telehealth Services under the 1135 waiver, comes your way Thursday, April 15th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now and save $40 when you enter the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. This webcast is part of a portfolio of educational webcasts produced by ICD-10 Monitor. And during this national public health emergency, accessible online education is more important than ever before. Visit the ICD-10 Monitor bookstore and learn how you can access the ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast subscription. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Talk Tune Tuesday. It's called Talk Back and it features your own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what are you going to be reporting today? Does anyone else feel like we have lived five years in the last two weeks? The rapidity with which our medical world is evolving and changing is unbelievable. My clinical colleagues are in the biggest fight of their lives. I have tabled my business and my provider modules to try to assist in any way I can and I may even be going back to clinical medicine relatively soon. Some of you may have seen the ED documentation template for COVID-19 that I designed with collaboration for others. We pushed it out um, last week as a special news bulletin. Please feel free to bring it to your organization. 
I believe that Emily has put it in the resources tab for you. The other contribution I personally can make to the fight right now is to ensure that all our our listeners and readers understand how to apply the new codes. In an unprecedented move for an unprecedented global pandemic, the CDC adopted the WHO ICD-10 code U07.1, COVID-19, into ICD-10-CM in a matter of weeks for an off-cycle update. For a review of the history and nomenclature of COVID, I suggest you read my article in ICD-10 Monitor. In anticipation of the new code, I was having some animated discussions on LinkedIn. I contended that U07.1 did not have to be the principal diagnosis, specifically when it resulted in sepsis. I was validated when the final ICD-10-CM official coding and reporting guidelines for COVID-19 came out. Let me lay it out for you, but please check out my article for more details. If a provider says it is COVID-19, whether it is based on positive testing or clinical judgment, you code U07.1. Like I said before, you have to be aware that approximately 30% of negatives are false negatives. So your clinician may diagnose COVID with a purportedly negative test. If a provider were to note COVID-19 or presumptive COVID-19 with a presumptive positive test, which means it has been done at the local or state level but not confirmed by public health, you code U07.1. Presumptive sounds like it should be considered an uncertain diagnosis, but it is not. A pending test means that it has been performed, but the results are not available yet. If a provider does document an uncertain diagnosis, such as probable, possible, suspected, likely, etc., you do not code U07.1. You use the signs or symptoms which elicited the visit. If there has been known or suspected exposure to COVID-19, the test is negative or pending, and the clinician does not make a clinical diagnosis of covid The code is Z20.828, contact with and suspected exposure to other viral communicable diseases. If there were exposure and the tests were positive, you only capture the U07.1, the COVID-19. One of the things about the guidance that confused me at first was the subsection regarding exposure to COVID-19. What it says is that if there is a concern about a possible exposure, but after evaluation it turns out the exposure was ruled out, the code Z03.818, encounter for observation for suspected exposure to other biological agents ruled out, is the correct way to record it. Obviously, this would only apply to a patient who tests negative and has no symptoms. If a patient is asymptomatic, has no exposure, and tests negative, the screening code of Z11.59, encounter for screening for other viral diseases, is the correct code. Let's talk sequencing for a moment. If the patient has COVID-19, normal sequencing rules apply. That is, it has to meet the principal diagnosis criteria, such as being present on admission, and not be superseded by another condition. A pregnant patient should have a principal O code. 
the guidelines suggest O98.5, other viral diseases complicating pregnancy, childbirth, and the puerperium. And I think maybe 099.5, diseases of the respiratory system, may also apply. If sepsis is present on admission, the principal diagnosis is A41.89, other specified sepsis, and U07.1 is secondary and an MCC. If the sepsis develops later in the stay, it will be a secondary diagnosis to U07.1. For non-sepsis COVID cases, U07.1 is the principal, and manifestations like viral pneumonia or ARDS are secondary diagnoses. Continue staying at home. It seems to be working. Be safe and stay sane. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. Very, very important information you pass along. We've asked our panelists to remain to answer some questions that we've been uh, receiving here. Erica, let's take a look at some of those questions. We are currently assigning Z20.828 for patients who test negative for COVID-19 per the AHA webinar last week. What code did you say should be used for cases that test negative? Lori, did you want to take that or you want me to take it? I can take it. I believe it's Z11.59, and that's patient has no exposure and the test results are negative, but obviously you need to put something on the claim. So Z11.59, encounter for screening for other viral diseases. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. Think about it this way. Screening is always done for asymptomatic patients. So if a patient were to come in and they were having some bloody stools and you did a colonoscopy, that would not be a screening colonoscopy because they had a symptom. So if the colonoscopy were negative, you would use bloody stools as your diagnosis. If a patient were to come in and say, I have a sore throat and I feel chest tightness and their test is negative and the doctor does not clinically think that they have COVID-19 such that they want to diagnose that, then you would use their symptoms as their diagnosis. If a patient comes in and says, I've been exposed to COVID-19, I don't have any symptoms, but I'm worried about it, and they get worked up and so on and so forth, that patient, if they've had exposure, they would get the Z20 code for the exposure. If a patient were to be seen, and nowadays it's very unlikely, they had no symptoms, they have no exposure, and they're just nervous. If somebody were to do a test on them, which I can't really even imagine where it would be done that way, because my son is actually having symptoms and they won't do a test on him. So I can't imagine they're really going to be doing screening yet because we don't have enough tests yet. If they're asymptomatic, they have no exposure, and they're just nervous, that's when you would use the Z11.59, the screening, the screening code. So that's the answer to that question. Somebody asked, could you please repeat the codes and how to use them for COVID-19? And what I'm going to say to you is, why don't you take a look at my article in ICD-10 Monitor today? I think I really did a pretty good job of trying to make it crystal clear for this. 
And I want to just uh, reinforce what Erica said. She has an excellent article in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. And that's going to be a wrap for our 410th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Stanley Nockerson, our special guest, Lorraine Fernand, and, of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, thank you very much. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.